this uh, picture at the end of the worship time, and it was uh, a fence and somebody on the outside looking in. And if that speaks to you this morning, I want to tell you that there is a gate to go through. And I want to tell you that the gate is open. And the gate is Jesus. He said, I am the gate. And the gate is the grace of God. And so it doesn't matter, you know, uh, where you feel you're at, or whether you feel you're a failure, you fail God, whether you're listening in on the live stream this morning and that applies to you, uh, you don't have to look in from the outside feeling that you're not good enough, that you're disqualified, or anything like that, because actually we all came in through the same gate, and that is the grace of God. None of us deserve to be in the kingdom of God. Uh, none of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve to be sons and daughters of God. None of us deserve to be in relationship with God. He just opened the gate and let us in. And so don't ever feel that for it doesn't matter what your story is or what has happened in your life or what you feel like, you are not disqualified because the grace of God is available to you. And all we have to do is say what we already know, which is, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Uh, and uh, if, if he has to carry you through the gate, he will. But for goodness sakes, don't be stuck on the outside when there's an open gate in front of you. Now, I want to talk this morning, uh, I'd like to read uh, some verses from the end of Acts chapter 2 and verses 43 to 47. They devoted themselves, Acts chapter 2 and 43, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, I want to... Uh, uh, put a title on this message, and uh, the t I thought about various titles, and suddenly a really good one came into my mind, which is Firm Foundations. That's who we are. And we are Firm Foundations as a church because God has given Firm Foundations. And these are the foundations that God laid in the beginning of that first church. The, the day of Pentecost came, the temple of God, uh, heaven opened up, and some measure of the temple of God fell down on the city of Jerusalem and took up these believers into the presence of God began to move signs and wonders and mighty miracles through them, and all of a sudden affected thousands of people. It was instantaneous revival. 
And then at the end of that account of the day of Pentecost comes these verses. Because Pentecost was not just an individual experience that somebody had that was a wonderful milestone you could look back to, but Pentecost instantly created the church and affected everything. Because when God comes into your life by His Spirit, He affects everything. It's not just, uh, you know, you have an exciting moment in worship every so often, or you, God meets you in prayer time. Your whole life is changed. And not only is your whole life changed, but you are drawn into community. Because uh, when the Holy Spirit fell, He gathered up all those people and He drew them together into this incredible community. Because Christianity is not meant to be lived out as an individual experience. That's why people that come along and say, well, I don't go to church, Jesus is my pastor, and stuff like that, are so totally, totally mistaken. They're so far removed from what the Word of God teaches, because the Word of God teaches that the Holy Spirit does not just draw a whole bunch of individuals into personal religious experiences. He draws us together into koinonia, into community. And in that community, which crosses every possible human boundary of gender, age, race, culture, you name it, He throws all of us together into this amazing experience, which is called the kingdom of God. And so, that's what we're part of this morning. And if, if you're here, or if you're listening to this somewhere else, and you feel a little bit like, you know, the uh, example of the fence that I used on the outside looking in, come on in. Do you know you can come to church on Sunday morning and still not really be part of church? Because it's something in your heart. People go to churches all the time, especially larger ones. They sit in the back, they come, they go. Nobody knows that they were even there. And it's fine with them. But that's not God's intention. God's intention is what is written in these verses. So let's look at them. It says a number of things here, but the first and most obvious thing is they were believers. That's what they were described as. All the believers, verse 44, were together. Believers are people who have believed in or trusted Jesus Christ. The word in the Greek language for belief, pistuo, does not refer to an intellectual or mental fact that you believe. It refers to trusting a person. So when we believe, it isn't just that we believe a set of facts or truths about God. It's that we trust our life to Him. So these were people who had trusted Christ. Trusted their lives, their destiny, now and forever. And entered into personal relationship with Him. Every other religion in the world is based on a set of beliefs about God. But only Christianity is based on a relationship with God. That's the difference. And so, for that reason, we say Christianity isn't even a religion, it's a relationship. And if it's a relationship with God, it's a relationship with one another as well. 
Now, it may seem like an obvious point to have to make, but we still need to make it. The church is people, not a building. We meet in a building. The building is not the church. We are the church. The old covenant was built around a holy place, which was the temple. The new covenant is built around a holy people, the church. Never refer to a church building as the church. I wrap people's knuckles all the time. And it's a little bit easier here because it's not called Firm Foundation Church. It's called Firm Foundation Ministries, which emphasizes the serving and the action that we do together as we serve the community. But this is not the church. So don't ever say, uh, I'll meet you at the church. Or, uh, I left my car parked at the church. Say, the church building. I'm going to do something that I hate it when people do to me, but I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to say, repeat after me, church building. Okay, this is the church building that we are meeting in. We are the church. Our terminology reveals our theology. Is our thinking old covenant or new covenant? So, our friends down the road put a new church building up, but the building had to be blessed and sanctified and consecrated by the bishop and so on because that's a mentality that they have. Now, God bless them, but that's not a mentality we have. When the, you know, this building was built, you didn't see the pastor and the elders coming in, sprinkling, you know, uh, holy, well, I was going to say holy water. In this case, it'd be holy sweet tea around the, you know. And uh, Cindy so complains they're sprinkling coffee, but that's another matter. Uh, and so, no. You know, we're grateful that God has provided a place for us to meet. It's a functional necessity. If you need a building, then get a building. Ask God for a building, that's fine. But never get it into your head that the building is the church. Uh, there are lots of people who feel when you start churches, you don't have a real church until you have a building. And then it leads them into all sorts of stupidity and overextension and debt and all the rest of it. Just rent until it's just like a house. You need something to live in. You don't have to own a house. It may be financially better to rent a house. Who knows? But uh, you, you can have a church without having a building. There are hundreds and thousands of church congregations around the world today that don't have buildings. In warmer climates, they can meet outdoors and under trees and things like that. In Michigan, it's a little bit more faith building, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so it's nice to have a building and one in which the heating is working. But buildings are accessories, not necessities. They are our servants, not our masters. We acquire a building if we have a need for it, if we can't function properly without it, and if it does not consume resources that should be going into people and ministry. And so buildings carry a tendency to warp our theology by making us think of the church more as an institution and less as a family. Because all those parts of the Old Covenant where there was a holy building and all these holy activities had to go on in it and all the rest of it, you know, they, they warp our thinking. 
So this is a building in which we meet as God's people, and then the church is sent out into the community to be the church in the community. And you can have church all over the place. You can have church in the factory that you work in. You can have church in the school uh, that you're a student in or college, or you can have church in your home or in your neighborhood. You can have church, as we had last night, a number of us down at an Amish place, and I don't even know where it was. You needed a word of knowledge to find out how to get there. And so Roger led us in convoy, and uh, on the way out, Elaine said, well, Roger, why aren't you looking back the way you were in the way? He says, oh, I don't care. They, they, I only care that they got here. They can find their own way home. So I thought, well, there, there's a real caring attitude, but <laughs> God willing, hopefully you did. So number one, they were believers. They were people who trusted in Christ, and the church is all about a community of people who uh, relate to God, are in relationship with God, in, and, and in relationship with one another. And the second thing it says is, they were together, verse 44. And again, we could pass over this comment that the believers were together. We, you know, we, we could just pass right over without even noticing it, but it's significant. We should want to be together. Now, I admit, there are some occasions I don't want to hardly see anybody uh, um, you know that phrase, peopled out. And uh, it would never occur among any of the elders here whatsoever, I know. Uh, but I admit every so often I just get peopled out. But it doesn't last long because our life, Elaine and me, is about people. And... Uh, there is something when God begins to move in the midst of us that is very, very exciting, and we want to be together. Why would you not? Why, why would you want to miss church? You might miss something really exciting. Why would you want to miss if you're in a small group? Why would you want to miss out on that? If, if you're having coffee with a, a, a friend who's a Christian, why would you want to miss out on that? We should always want to be together. That's what families do. And, and are there imperfections? Yes, there are imperfections. Are, are there sometimes, well, anyway, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you just feel like hanging out in a corner and being a grouch. But you get over that. Fellowship should be something we long for. The church is meant to be the place where people find community. This wonderful Greek word koinonia, which means having things in common. When, when we're family, we have things in common. We, we, we could go, Elaine and I have gone to various countries and so on. You could go to, the, to some place where the culture is completely different, but where you meet a Christian there, you have more koinonia, community, in common with those people than your next-door neighbor that doesn't know Christ. It's true, isn't it? It's, it's an amazing thing. You find out. You, you can... You know, you can be on holiday in some other part of the country, and you sit down, and there's some people in a, you know, in a hotel or in a, a restaurant or something, and the next table, you find out they're Christians pretty soon, or the waitress, you start talking, and all of a sudden, you have a whole world in common, because we're all part of God's family. They were together. These people in Acts 2, they met, it says, every day. 
together in the temple. And uh, uh, later on, the New Testament tells us that the church gathered regularly on the first day of the week, which was the Lord's day, the day the Lord rose from the dead, which is why we transitioned from the Jewish Sabbath until uh, to meet on Sundays. But there's no reason to believe that those Christians ceased to fellowship during the week. So we have other things to do, obviously, but we should be fellowshipping and enjoying community every day of the week in one way or another. We complain about sometimes, I know it would include none of you here this morning, but sometimes people complain about having to gather together once a week to worship and fellowship and be taught, but believers in this church, they wanted to be together all the time. They didn't want to miss out in case they missed out on God doing something. I remember when the, we had the movement of the Holy Spirit in the, uh, about 25 years ago, and, you know, sometimes it was like pulling teeth to get people to come out to small groups, and all of a sudden the small groups were going on till midnight because God was doing something, and nobody wanted to miss out on what God was doing. And, you know, when God is moving in the midst, you can even put up with the person beside you that, you know, talks too much or has bad breath or something like that. You know, everything just looks better when the Holy Spirit is, is around. Amen? If we don't feel like being part of the corporate gathering, as the corporate gathering is mandated by the Scriptures, we're not, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. It's, it's not spiritual. It's not godly. It's not biblical to be sitting at home watching an evangelist or something on television and feeling that, you know, you're, you can't find any church that, you know, exactly suits. I mean, I said to one guy, well, we haven't found a church in this area that, that you know, and I, I said, there's hundreds of churches in this area. There's something wrong with you, not with them. There's got to be one church, you know? And... If you're looking for the perfect church, you'll wreck it anyway the minute you walk in. We should enjoy each other's company and want to be. I don't know about you, but personally, wherever we go, and we're in a lot of churches now, by the grace of God, in the course of a year, we always enjoy and look forward to church, even when I'm not preaching. We always look forward to it. We always look forward to meeting new people. And when you've met people, then when we go back, we always look forward. There's some people, we were just talk, talking, Elaine and I were talking the other day about a particular couple and hoping that we'll be able to see them or even stay with them the next time we're in England because we miss people. And these are people that we just got to know because we stayed overnight with them a, a year or two ago. That's what... Fellowship is, do you understand what I'm saying? That's what fellowship is supposed to be like. We should enjoy each, each other's company, want to be together. Okay, number one, they were believers. They had a re living relationship with God. Number two, they were together. Uh, and number three, it says they were devoted in verse 42. The Greek word is proskartereo, and it means to be glued or stuck together, like super glue. And it says they were devoted 
in a number of different ways. First of all, they were devoted to, they were stuck to, they were glued to the apostles' teaching. Now, people only get tired of teaching when the teaching strays from its source of life in the Word of God. So, uh, I mean, I'm not saying it is possible, it's highly unlikely, but it's theoretically possible that someone might nod off while I am preaching this morning. And uh, I won't be like my old math teacher that had a supply of pieces of chalk that he used to throw at people uh, when they weren't paying attention in class. But um, uh, this room's too big to see anyway, whether you're, you've fallen asleep or not. But uh, generally speaking, as long as you stick to the Word of God and the teaching comes out of the Word of God, there's life in it. And when there's life in it, you're listening. You're not nodding off, falling asleep. It's not irrelevant. It's speaking to you. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. How many of you have been sitting in a message, unsuspecting, enjoying the preaching, and thinking, yeah, he's on a roll this morning, this is pretty good, and so on, and then all of a sudden, there's a, the sword comes out, and it slices you. Oh, ouch. That's happened to me. Rarely, of course, but... <laughs> I'm thinking, man, this is a really good rebuke that Rod needs this morning in his life. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, that old sword swings in my direction. Ouch. Um, or sometimes it's just God takes us up in the mystery of who he is and begins to explain a little bit more, and there's supernatural life and power in that. And we get caught up in a vision of who God is, and we get excited about that, and we begin to see that God has a plan for my life, and that, you know, God wants each one of you, because we live in community together, and the Holy Spirit is moving in the midst, and your life is significant and important, and you have a part to play in the purpose of God this morning. You know, you have a destiny, and God wants to send you out of these doors this morning, out of this church building, into the community, and He's going to do something in your life this week. Because he wants to. You know? I don't, I don't have to prophesy that. It's just truth. He wants to do that. And all of a sudden, there's a little bit of life. And the word of God comes alive to you. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, I think, personally, we should be less seeker-sensitive and more word-sensitive. Because we're a people of the word. And when I teach on authority of Scripture, those of you who heard me teaching that, I'll say something like this. The Word of God came in the form of a treaty in the same way a conquering king would impose his will on a defeated people. The treaty can't be broken. Not a word of it can be changed. And that's how God gave the Bible to Moses in exactly that way. So you don't cut parts out of the Bible because they offend you or the culture in which we live. The Bible offends, is highly offensive to a lot of things in the culture in which we live. Well, let me tell you, the culture does not judge the Word of God. The Word of God judges the culture. And we have a choice to make. We're either a people of the book, or we will fall into the same kind of lostness and lies 
and stupidity and error that is going on in the world. And it ain't doing much good for the world today, is it? So let's stick to the truth that we know. And so the believers were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to the word of God. But it also means they were devoted to the apostles themselves. In other words, they expressed their loyalty to God in a willingness to follow the leaders that he had appointed over them. And let me tell you, if, you're, if, if we don't have a commitment to follow leadership in the church, the church will go absolutely nowhere. Now, is leadership perfect? No, it's never perfect. Uh, you know, sometimes the el elders might walk past you and forget to say hello to you uh, or shake your hand. It's probably not because they're trying to be rude to you. Well, they might, it's possible, but it's unlikely. Uh, it's probably because they have something else in their mind, but you can get all offended over nothing. And people do that all the time. And I hear complaints in all sorts of different churches about, you know, some elders, some pastor, this or that, and their petty complaints and stupidity. And the people have shot themselves in the foot because they got all offended. They leave the church. They sit marooned on their own little island in a mess all over some stupid little offense. Well, uh, you're better off trying to follow your leaders. Most of your leaders, to be honest, if you're in, I always say, if you meet a, a man who wants to be an elder, I've got a psychiatrist I can refer him to. <laughs> because uh, it's a hard job that involves a lot of criticism and a lot of sacrifice and... Uh, all that type of stuff. So respect those that God has put over you. They're not in it to lord it over you. They're here to serve you. And this apostolic church upon which the Holy Spirit fell was composed of people who were committed to follow their leaders. They were committed to follow their leaders. They didn't second guess. They didn't go home after the elders have presented a vision and say, well, I don't think I agree with that. They said, by faith, God has called us to trust the leadership. That's, that's a hard thing for people in our independent-minded culture to do. But it's the right thing to do. And what if leadership gets it wrong? Well... Do you believe that God is great enough that he can correct leadership? Yes, he is. And I can assure you there's lots of times when leadership in various situations that we've known has got something wrong and then has gone back and God speaks and they adjust and people even come back sometimes and apologize. And that's wonderful. That's all the more reason to follow them. But you're, you will have to follow a leadership that is imperfect. Because by definition, we're all imperfect. But the alternative is you going out there and having your own little pseudo-church and winding up in death and confusion. So, don't do that. That's shooting yourself in the foot. They were devoted to the teaching, to the Word of God, 
and they were devoted to the leadership that, that they were under. But it also says here they were devoted to the fellowship. And that's the other part of this that's really important. They possessed a bond of commitment and faithfulness and loyalty without which a New Testament church is impossible to build. We have to be committed to one another. I was reading the other day that I didn't count the number of times, but there are multitudes of times in the New Testament where the word one another is used. There's so many uh, ways in which God wants us to uh, conduct our life with one another. The Christian life is not an individual thing. It's a family thing. I mean, our salvation is, a, is individual. You, you can't get saved just by coming to church or in the strength of somebody else's faith. But once you've been brought into the faith, you're part of a family. And it says they were devoted to the fellowship. Like I said, the word devoted means to be glued to. So a healthy church is a church in which people are glued to each other. And in those moments when you kind of get a little bit ticked off, I only say this theoretically because it's never happened to me 40 plus years. In those moments where you get a little impatient with somebody, I have to remind myself, God has glued me to that person. I'm stuck. And maybe the fact that God has glued me to that person, I'm a little irritated, is, doesn't say something about them. It says something about a problem in me. And if they do have a problem, it's not my job to, to, to sort that out. God can sort that out, but I need to look. What is wrong in my heart when I don't have that love of fellowship? I'm just appealing to you this morning. When you get a dissatisfaction with church, Satan is on the move in your mind. Hear me. Now, some of you are automatically being offended, but the sword's coming out, and it's slicing. When you get a spirit of grumbling, that got people into a lot of trouble in the days of Moses. You know, things like the earth swallowed them up, and that type of thing that you do not want to happen to you. So, where there is that discontent, or where other people come along and start spreading discontent, don't be part of it. Don't be part of it. There's always something to complain about. There's always something that somebody else could complain about in relation to you. But being in a church is a little bit like being married, isn't it? We walk together in a covenant, which expresses our commitment to stick with each other no matter what. No matter what. You go through the thick of it, and you go through the thin of it, and you still come out walking together. And that's what builds powerful churches. Now, let me tell you what happens when people begin to express this kind of covenant commitment. And I'll never forget a friend of mine uh, in the early days of starting our church in England said to me, Dave, I'm in covenant commitment with you the rest of my life. And I knew he was talking about something serious. I knew he'd always be there if I needed him. I was just talking with him the other day, and that was 40 years ago now. And so when we express this kind of commitment to one another, what happens is that we are placing value 
on each other. We're, we're saying, you are significant in my life. You're, we're saying, I care for you and what happens to you. What's going on in your life? Is there a crisis? Well, can you let me know and I'll be praying for you. How can I help you? Uh, and all the thousands of, what, of, of ways that we can be devoted to one another. If uh, we all begin expressing that to one another, what happens is that the whole sense of value and significance rises in the congregation. We all feel valued because we're all expressing... We're all, do you understand what, what I'm saying when I, when I say we need to place value on one another? So the question is, are you placing value on people in your life this morning by being interested in them, by praying for them, by being concerned for them, by being willing to spend time with them and all these type of things. A woman knows she's worth something when a man is ready to walk in covenant with her. If a man is not ready to walk in covenant, then he has no right to ask for her hand in marriage or for any privileges whatsoever. You prepared to walk in covenant, son. <laughs> you know, that means it's forever. It means the laying down of your life. This is what happens when you sit in the front row. Don't ever do it. <laughs> and there's no conditions. There's no reason to walk out, ever. It's always serving. It's always loving. That's covenant. When you... You're, because you're ready to express that on the day that you will express that, then you have the right to have someone else in your life. But always on that basis, you know, it's a profound thing, isn't it? That's why God says that marriage, human, the marriage of a man and woman, is the closest possible thing that we can use to describe the union of Christ and the church. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It would be wonderful how you will... Um, shine the light of Christ and show something about the love of Jesus for his people simply by your marriage and what God does out of it. I think it's going to be exciting. So, and probably Tyler does too. So anyway. <laughs> and so, are we prepared to walk in covenant with one another? I, I uh, better look at my watch here. Um, I remember years and years and years ago, we had a couple in our congregation in uh, Ontario, and uh, anyway, they left. And uh, I went and appealed to them, and I said, you know, I said, it's like divorce. And they were extremely offended with me. And I said, when you walk out on brothers and sisters in Christ, especially when there's no biblical reason to do so, you're breaking covenant. Well, we have... You know? And of course, so many people I've seen in my life that have done that wind up nowhere. So, they were devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to leadership. They were devoted to the fellowship with each other. And it says two more things quickly here. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. That's interesting because the word means both uh, common meals and the fellowship involved in them and also the Lord's Supper. Because back in uh, 
the Passover, in the days of the Passover, uh, the Passover occurred in the context of a common meal together. And so in the New Testament church, as far as I can see, communion occurred in the context of a kind of a church lunch, you know? And we tried to, and did follow this for years in Owen Sound, we used to have communion and then we used it to lead into a lunch that we had after, after church, which we were able to do given the size of the congregation and the facilities we had and so on. Not always possible. But it's interesting to think that the Lord's Supper, the Passover, occurred within the context, just like Jesus and the 12 disciples, of a meal which expressed their fellowship and life together. So they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And so... Uh, whether that was eating together or whether it was observing the Lord's Supper, um, they observed it a lot more than most of our churches today, too. So that's another thing to think about. And finally, they were devoted to prayer. No church can grow strong and deep unless believers have a heart for prayer. Prayer is the lifeblood of our relationship with God. That We started a church in England out of prayer. A hundred young people university students, 7 o'clock every morning for a year, a hundred of them or more met together for an hour every morning to intercede and call on God. And out of that, people started getting saved, miracles of healing started happening, prophetic things came forth, and a church was birthed, which has now planted churches in various other nations of the world, and, um, uh, and thousands of people have come to Christ. And it all started in a prayer meeting. So, they were devoted to prayer. And then, as we finish here, it says a couple more things about these people. One says, they were filled with awe. And the literal reading in Greek is, there was on every person fear. Now, let me tell you, there's such a thing as the fear of God. And the fear of God is not a bad thing. There's good fear and there's bad fear in life. We can be paranoid about things that we shouldn't be afraid of. That's a bad fear. But there's a good fear. There's a good fear when, you know, you, your, your children don't wander out onto the highway where traffic is going past because the fear of, <laughs> they've been put into fear of what might happen. That's a good fear. And so to live in the fear of God is a good thing. Since we're receiving a kingdom, Hebrews says, that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and fear, for our God is, is a consuming fire. Uh, the fear of God is not rooted in the idea that God can't wait to find something wrong with you so he can take his stick and beat you. The fear of God is rooted in the desire of my heart not to offend the one who has shown me such incredible love. That's the true fear of God. I don't want to. Do I live in the fear of my wife? Well, in one sense, yes, I do. Because I live in the fear of offending her, of hurting her. I don't live in the fear that, well, sometimes there's just a shred of it, that she might come after me <laughs> over this or that or the next thing. But no, the fear that I have in relation to Elaine, is the fear that I would somehow hurt her and uh, that she would feel abandoned or not cared for or betrayed or so on. And so that's how 
I conduct my relationship or I should conduct my relationship with God. I don't want to offend the one who has shown me such love. And then finally, it says about these early believers, so much in these few short verses, that they were people of gladness and sincerity and praise. Those three words are all used to describe them. The word gladness means a wild, celebrating, celebratory joy. It's not just, oh, I feel pretty good today. It's hallelujah! Or something like that. Don can do that better than me. That's what it means. The Greek word is angaliasis. It means exceedingly great joy. So they were, they were people who were pumped. And it says they were sincere. The word sincere means transparent, clear, and straightforward. It means this is who I am. You're not going to get a surprise you know who I am, what I stand for, and that I'll live up to it. That's who they were. They were sincere. And, uh, and they were people of praise. And praise, as you know, is more than being grateful when things are going well. Praise is give thanks in some circumstances. <laughs> no, it's to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, let me quickly review what I've said from the beginning which is about this, this apostolic church. The Spirit of God fell on the day of Pentecost, and they had a great wingding and a wonderful experience, but that experience and power created the church. And this is a photograph of that early church. You know, it's like uh, the Polaroid cameras where you get an instant print out of it. And this is the snapshot. And it says that they were believers that they were people who had a living relationship. They trusted God. It says they were together. They had koinonia. They had community. They had, they, it says that they were devoted. They were devoted to the authority of the Word of God. They were devoted to their leadership. They were devoted to having fellowship with one another. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to prayer. Then it says they were filled with fear. They were people who feared offending God. And then it says they were people of gladness, of hallelujah-type uh, jubilation. They were people of sincerity. They were people that, that were straight up front. You knew who they were, and you could count on them. And they were people of praise. They were people who are always prepared to give thanks in all circumstances. And no wonder, when you get to the end of all of this list, and forgive me, I've, I don't know when I started now, so, uh, but I know I'm about to finish. It says... They enjoyed the favor of all the people. Now think about this for a minute in verse 47. It says of those people, even of the people who did not accept Christ, they still enjoyed favor. Now why did they enjoy favor? They enjoyed favor because of all the other things that I've talked about and tried to squash into this message this morning. The result of that is that they will enjoy favor. Even people out there that can't bring themselves to agree with what we believe or to honor or accept Jesus Christ as Lord will still hold us in high regard if we are that kind of people. Right? We'll have favor in the community. And if we don't have favor in the community, then that's a sign 
that God needs to adjust us in some of these other areas. Don't blame the world for disliking us. If we have a bad reputation in the world, in the community out there, it's not their problem. That goes countercultural to us, doesn't it? Because we tend to think, oh, they're a bunch of sinners, or, you know, they don't get things right, or, you know, it, it, all of this kind of stuff. But no, if we have a bad reputation, obviously there are some people, no matter what we did, they wouldn't be happy. But if we have a bad reputation in the community, it's because there's something rotten in here. If we have a good reputation in the community, it's because we're doing something right. And the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst. Just think about it. Back in those early days, when Peter went out to Starbucks for coffee, which, because they didn't serve it in the church, <laughs> when Peter went out to Starbucks for coffee, and he's walking along the street with his you know, extra hot caramel macchiato or whatever it was he had. He's probably pretty trendy. And uh, he was disturbed and interrupted in his coffee drinking. What happened? People were saying, hey, that guy's, see that guy with the caramel macchiato coming out of Starbucks? It, you, you got somebody sick in your family? All you have to do is throw them down on the ground, and when he walks by and a drip of coffee floats off his cup in their general direction, they'll get healed. It says they place the sick out in the streets so that as even Peter's shadow passed by them, they were healed. Now, that's what I call having a good reputation in the community. And we may not have that anointing that Peter did, but we still cast a shadow in the community through our love, through our good works, through our care for people, through our sincerity, through the fact that our life lines up with our doctrine. Do you know what? People, people get disillusioned and angry when a, a, a prominent preacher falls. Unsaved people get mad because that preacher is their lifeline to hope. They know their life is in a mess, but they look at someone like that and they think, well, that's, there's still good in the world. And then they become angry if, if it doesn't work out right. Well, people should be able to look at us and say, my life isn't a mess, but those people over at Firm Foundation have got something. There's still, there's still something to hope for. And you may find, if you just persevere with those people, they may show up in church someday and get saved. The church in Jerusalem, was not a perfect church. You read all these things. Oh, man, that's amazing. We can't live up to that. But you know what? It was composed of people just like you and me. But that's the encouragement, isn't it? The lesson of that church is that ordinary people who follow God's plan and seek Him with all their heart can have a real impact on their community. We've got the blueprint for it. All we need to bring it to life is the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is available for us right now. Let's stand together. Now, Father, I thank you for this uh, congregation. Dozens are away, even in this morning as I'm speaking, serving 
in another country at their own expense. And there are many, many other ways in which you've used this congregation to reach out into the surrounding areas and other places with the love of Jesus. And I pray you bless them for it. But I pray, Lord, would you draw us together into a new anticipation of what you're going to do. And we can look back on the first church in Jerusalem and say, well, we wish we had that. Or we can look ahead and say, we can have that. I don't know if any of you saw the videos of the 150,000 young people in Brazil. They rented a stadium. They sold out. They had to rush out and rent a second one. They sold out. They had to rent a third one. By the time they'd rented the third stadium and had them all full, the president of the nation came. He wasn't invited. He just came and he said, I need prayer. Uh, and they prayed for him. Amazing. And that in a country which just a generation ago, as I was talking with Eddie the other night, was just full of superstition and religion and very little real Christianity. So God can do it anywhere, at any time, in any place. Jesus, thank you that you're here in your church this morning. That's the people as we're gathered together. And you're also here with that part of the church that's in the Dominican Republic and other members of the congregation who are in Florida or other places this morning, or some even sick at home or on the road in some place, Montana and other places. There's people in this church that are churching it all over the world this morning. But they're all part of this faith community. Lord, would you pour out your spirit, please? Would you pour out your spirit upon us again? Lord, we can never get enough of you. We want to see everything the apostolic church had and more because we have a heck of a lot more people to reach than they did in those days. And may it all be, Lord, to your glory and your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.